check. We're back to the spectacle, the audio spectacle. Hello, spectators of the spectacle. Well, what is it? Another week of the Situationist International. We're back. I'm really excited about this text, but you know, I feel, I feel like all the fizz is out of my pop, so to speak, like butter over too much bread. So Why? I'm gonna try to, I don't know, life. You did just release your new video, right? Another day, another release. Speaking of spectacle, your camera is going. Yeah, nuts I don't know what's going on with that. I tried turning it off and on again. I kind of like it. I kind of I wish I could re- reproduce that effect in After Effects. To the listener who can't see him, he looks like he's glitching, and his face is turning into my face, like a <laughs> an agent from the Matrix. Yeah, it's like uh, some kind of a glitch in the Matrix happening on my camera over here. The pill is taking you over. Okay, so before we explain what we're doing today, um, I have a book that I have read and found and forgot about when we started this because we wanted to read Society of Spectacle, right? And a lot of what we were anticipating and kind of what we'll go over again today was they were they were ready to come by 1968. These guys were going so hard. They thought modern art, modern video, new theory, we're going to change the all that energy went into 68 and it kind of explains the disappointment after, but De Boer also wrote a book on his own book afterwards. It's called oh, really? It's called Comments on the Society of Spectacle. Yeah. So I thought, yeah, if we if we try to burn through the Society of Spectacle book, then it might be fun to read his hindsight. Because I, I have read it and I have no idea what it says. I completely forgot that I even possessed it. But it would be interesting to hear his post-revolution, post-failed revolution thoughts compared to his pre-revolution thoughts. The post-coital spectacle. That's I mean, interesting. I, I think he's deepened his position on that the uh, spectacle is taking over. I actually clipped out a quote from it. He said, spectacular domination has succeeded in raising an entire generation molded to its laws. <laughs> That's what he writes in the later book. In, in comments? In 1988. Yeah, in comments oh, in nice. 1988, he wrote that. He's He thinks we're just like deep in the matrix now. <laughs> so to recap last week a little bit, revolution needs this. I mean, what I read today I'll explain in a sec. We read different things. But what I read today sounds so much like a Twitter Marxist or a Twitter anarchist. <laughs> it's like we it's like we're just repeating the loop that we're stuck on. And they wrote it pre-68. So I found that fascinating. But they're kind of saying we need a truly revolutionary subjectivity. This is a bit of a recap, but we need to revolutionize everyday life. We can't just change jobs to labor unions to syndicates we need like we need tv that is revolutionary and art an art world that is revolutionary we need revolutionary subjectivity no yeah exactly exactly as compared to altuzer which is the big distinction we're we're drawing which is new i haven't i hadn't considered it in these terms before but the de board side is 
humanist Marx. We need like a, a, a we need to remake the world and a revolu- revolt the subject. Whereas Althusser is far more or less about the subject, I should say. He's very much like the subject is a product of the system and not vice versa. So it's a it's an interesting debate to rehash and one that I didn't even know was a debate. And that famous and infamous line, uh, what is it, like history is without a subject or something? So I don't know. Uh, are you going first, Pills? Or? Well, yeah, why don't we explain what we're doing? To, to cover yeah. more ground, because if you go to the... There's going to be a link, but if you go to the SI archive, which is a big website, it's got so many. My camera is so distracting. I'm sorry. (laughs) I need to turn it off. I'm trying not to look at it. I feel like you should edit it out and use it in one of your future videos. Yeah, because you're 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 taking the video of this, right? That'd be funny. I want to I want to take the uh, the effect and try to reproduce it. But anyway, we wanted to cover more ground because so much of what they write is in little articles like pamphlets, uh, little little films and movies and stuff. So we thought we would do what you do in a grad seminar and you split up the work where everybody reads and then you try to teach teach each other what it said. So we're going to split this into three. Each of us chose our own thing following our own interests to read. Yeah. And I'll, I guess I'll go, I'll yeah, go so what first because it's kind of a segue from last week. I read The Revolution of Modern Art and The Modern Art of Revolution. So they're still, they're still working on art. And kind of like I said, they're, they are so hopeful. It's, a, it's something I'm jealous for because this was written particularly in 1967. So one year before 68. And it makes a lot more sense to me, having read this, why 68 was such a big deal for so many of, not just the SI, but so many like Marxist, young academics, theorists, and artists. Because they had the, they had the biggest heart on you could get. They were ready to go. Then the strikes started. Uh, you got the workers in the streets. You got the students in the streets. And then it all comes to nothing because of the neolib cave-in, depending on your perspective. Mm. So um, my- So there's a lot of optimism. Yeah. It's it's like one of the quotations, I, I could just give you a sense of what this reading is like. One of the quotations is like, we don't need to burn the Louvre. We need to sack the Louvre and then burn it. <laughs> <laughs> like we we need to get out in the streets um, and a lot of it, it, it doesn't sound that foreign. Another quotation is like, the game now is the destruction of the sacred, whether it be the sanctity of Jesus or the sanctity of the electric mixer. Tragedy, says Lukács, is a game played in the sight of godlessness. The true form of godlessness will be the final achievement of revolution, the end of the illusory and all its forms, the beginning of real life and its direct self-consciousness. Hmm, yeah, that's interesting. Does it it's almost sounds a bit accelerationist even? Yeah, I think you could say that there. It's like we need to get rid of all the old. We need to get rid of this culture of that lives in the death or the shadow of the death of God. Um, we need to get rid of all illusion and then everything will look better for us. You know, well, it's like it's optimistic in the sense that like this is possible, but it's also quite I mean, for now, it it's very cynical 
in the sense that we're in the midst of commodity capitalism and everything is suspect. But something else is possible. So there's that that optimism combined with an extraordinary kind of skepticism towards every structure of modern society. Yeah. Well, my my tragic that, the tragic yeah, irony I found was like they want to destroy Christianity. There's Christianity is the enemy on one hand, and capitalism on the other, our market capitalism. So he says like we need to destroy the the cult of the electric mixer, like the the kitchen. <laughs> KitchenAid thingy. And what does he mean by that? That everyone is either still living in the past or they are just comfortable living among their commodities. Right. So I can't have like uh, creature comforts anymore in this situationist utopia. Like I can't just have like a dishwasher or things that make my life easier. I mean, you can, you can have them. You just are, are supposed to want for more. Right. I think I right. think we're becoming like just satiated by those things to never want anything more. Right. And the task of the artist and theorist is then to somehow make people want more. Right. But the tragic irony I found is like that seems right. He wants to he wants to destroy Christianity and tradition and whatever and our belief in liberalism. And I shouldn't even say he is multiple authors. But uh, the thing is like capitalism not not necessarily capitalism but at least our media ecology and the internet i think it has destroyed christianity and tradition as you know a universal foundation just not with the with the revolutionary potential to point towards afterwards that he that they were they were hoping for yeah i was gonna say i feel like all those things are being destroyed were destroyed continuing to be destroyed regardless um but I guess they're being replaced by this other kind of spectacle, right? Of like consumer capitalism and all this other stuff. Yeah, it's not yeah. like they're totally, you know, they, they they quote like Martin Luther King quite, you know, approvingly. And his whole thing is to bring that sort of Southern Christian Catholic uh, organization to the North to try and alleviate poverty and uh, and uh, and like wealth gaps. So it's not like they're 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 against it. They're against it insofar as it becomes a kind of mouthpiece of the spectacle of the of the dominant class, where the spectacle captures and then uses it parrots through kind of you know when you get commentary from from Christians and 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 cardinals and stuff on various events, they often just sort of. You know, they they deplore violence. They deplore rioting. Like they they, but they they deploy this approbation in such a way that the people who are rising up are the ones who are the target of these of this censure. So they end up just like these these types of people. Whereas like Martin Luther King, who they cite approvingly, is 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 not one of the targets. Right. If you have. This might be the case. It's not in this text, but it might be the case that if you have a religion with a revolutionary outcome, then they're willing to keep it around. But obviously in in Paris and France, they're probably speaking of conservative Catholicism, I would suppose. Yeah, like insofar as it's 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 a bulwark against anything that's going to disturb the commodity structure of society, then they're against it. That's the whole idea, right? Like destroying whatever, destroying the electric mixer, that's a commodity. It's exchange value that is completely subordinated use value. 
that's the sort of like there's like a the the that background of Marxist theory, where you have use value and exchange value, but exchange value comes to the fore, and use value becomes secondary. Yeah, they also are opposed to Wonder Bread. So, I I assume that in their world they would like to go back to a world of social related commodities because commodities are actually social relations where you very in a very french fashion you go out to the bakery at the beginning of the week and you get your your breads and that's that's a true social relation as opposed to buying wonder bread yeah 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 i mean they're just they're kind of just like snobby elitists really who just like hate anything that's like mass-produced they want yeah, everything I mean, to be artisanal. I mean, over, over, I mean I, elitist I, might be the wrong word. Because yeah, like a lot, of, a lot of it is about institutions. Word. They're anti-elitist, and right, they're anti-elitist. They are all about those happenings and teach-ins that go beyond the bounds of academic discourse. They're they're anti-elitist. They're they're anti-hierarchy in a certain way. Yeah, I mean, we can, I, I, like, on my reading of at least the thing that I read, I kind of, I, I've constructed a little bit of an argument for why I think like they kind of are unintentional elitists, but we can, we can put a pin in that until later. They just want everyday life to be connected to labor relations as it was in a perhaps nostalgic past. Free us yeah, from submission kind of to capitalism and the commodity. What what do you make of the claim? Because it's something, I mean, I don't know where we want to go in this discussion or if you have more to say uh, about this piece that you read, Pills. Oh, I got a ton of notes. I'd, okay, well, I don't know if you... Why don't you ask your question? That's a good way to keep going. Well, the question I have is more just about the claim, which is something that came up in my reading too. Um, it seems like there's a there's this idea of like mediation uh, under underlying their entire critique that the spectacle is somehow um, mediating us to like a less authentic form of human expression and creativity. And that like there was, or there's an implication that there was a time when we were, I don't know, and it sounds kind of Nietzschean to me, like living life directly, you know, there's this kind of claim about some, there's some kind of like atavism or something about uh, that, I'm, that I'm a little unsure about. And I guess I just, I have a lot of trouble with those kinds of claims, those kinds of nostalgia claims. Like, I think there's just different kinds of mediation, but I think like subjectivity itself is the process of like an unavoidable mediation where we're kind of alienated from ourselves, regardless of what the cultural, cultural structure is. Like whether yeah. we're in a tribal society, there's going to be all kinds of mystifications that come from a, as a result of those folk traditions. And then there's going to be a different kind of mediation. And I think you could make an argument that the mediation that's happening now is a result of of mass capitalism is like worse for various reasons, yeah. but I don't know if it's any more mediated uh, or at least I'm a skeptic about that. I don't think it's, it's not about, you know, going back or nostalgia, right? Cause that just kind of assumes that capitalism is the most advanced and we can't go forward beyond it. I think that would be a bad assumption to make because obviously Marxist theory is built on this <laughs> getting past it. Right? Yeah, yeah, no, I, but I it's totalizing. That. But, you know, here's like, you know, just as just as just as social relations among workers who are alienated come to be mediated by the products that confront them in the market. Now, what 
he's always kind of turning Marxist phrases like this. Now he says in aphorism four from the spectacle society of the spectacle, the spectacle is not a collection of images. It is a social relation between people that is mediated by images now. So instead of commodities, it's images that mediate our relationships. And I, I don't want to go give them away. I watched that film and it, you, as this text is going over in the in the voiceover, there's pictures of crowds of people staring back at the camera. And you get your idea of social relations from the spectacle, which represents them to you. And you are told how social relations, it, it's building on this idea that social relations are objectified and we are alienated from the products of our labor, which then mediate our social relations over and against us as they confront us in the market. This is now the image market, the spectacle. <laughs> right, so I, I think I have no problem with that kind of an analysis, right? Like I think that that's like a specific analysis and that does come up, but I think the thing that it rubs me the wrong way is, is is any sort of claim towards living life more directly or something like that. Like, so what's their positive account? And I, that was really the question I had. It's just like, what is this? What are they talking about when they say that? Well, let's get to that in the critique part, I guess. Okay. I want to agree with your initial response because it's also my initial response that we should be hesitant to believe like okay now everything's bad and then before everything was okay or better because you can say of course everything every every primitive ceremony uh religion is very much mediated by you know a different kind of image at least or images and ceremony and fantasy and simulacra yeah, exactly it always is yeah, but I sure. think there's also the case to be made that ours is worse. Yeah, I th I, like I, I think I said in my response that I'm open to that, right? But I just don't like this language of, and I'm not even talking about going back, like that there's a chronological claim here. But even the idea that you could live more directly with like some authentic core, I just don't really buy that. I just think there's different kinds of relationships that we can have to each other. They're all going to be mystified in different ways. I just don't think that there's a more authentic true one. And in some I ways, I think it would I just think, be less yeah. alienated. That's what all it would be. Maybe unalienate. Do you not see a difference between buying a or getting a, a a Walmart Wonder Bread like delivered to your house as opposed to going to the bakery of the guy who baked it? Yes, of course. I think that that I think that there's a difference there, but I don't know if there's like a like I, I guess I was reading the claim more as a claim about subjectivity. Like that, that subjectivity will change to be like more in touch with some with, I don't know, something. That's the thing that I'm not sure about. Right? No, that's um, that's a critique I'll make, but I'm going to make it in a long ass way, if that's OK. OK, so I picked this piece. It's called the Modern Art of Revolution and Revolution of Modern Art. They're really into art and they just say art's only getting worse. And they said this in the 60s. So. They said, like, we had the Dadaists, the Dadas, the Dadaists uh, pushed it a little bit. The Surrealists pushed it a little bit, but then they all became institutionalized and gave up and fucked them. So we need a new yeah. thing. And the new <laughs> thing that we got, in actual fact, was uh, modern art moving to America and becoming like Andy Warhol and Jeff Koons and Britain as well. And moving away from, from Paris as the center of the art world. But I want to... Like what they're going for is, I think they believe a little bit too much. This would be my pushback. They think that this capitalism thing is external rather than internal. 
and they understand it's mm. internal, but they kind of think, all right, we could we could purge it out. Yeah. So I want to make a comparison here because I picked this because you know I love Mad Men, the show. Um, I love Bernays. Well, I don't love Bernays. <laughs> I love I love that Bernays was like, we can hack the unconscious using Freud and advertise shit to people. Uh, yeah, we got totally. we got Deleuze in there. So on the other side of the Atlantic, we have MK Ultra doing its thing at the same time. They're they're basically looking for how far can we go down the mind to hack the subconscious. And turns out it's pretty complicated, doesn't really work, but they're trying to control the unconscious. Whereas these guys, they're trying to do their own hack, but they're trying to do their hack for a very different end to like awaken it to the totality of of social relations that are are obfuscated or turned into images so it's no longer a believable belief to us but still fascinating maybe it is believable i shouldn't say that i shouldn't dismiss it it's it's hard for me to believe i'll say um but this detournement that eric was talking about last week or reappropriation of ad images and they thought this was capable of so much and it's still a relevant question i think for today because you know we have a pretty online audience i would say maybe less colonized than most people on the internet because some of them still read books once in a while but you know quite online and we're helping and to decolonize them well, I don't know. I don't know if we're helping anything. <laughs> Decolonizing themselves, mostly. I know, yeah. I know. But the, I just mean like the the leftist influencers or Mark's TikToks, they probably still maintain this kind of hope. And us too, I guess. We're not doing it for no reason. And I feel like aren't there some people in our, in our audience who are kind of like that? No? Do we have the hope for a, a future media that's different? Yeah. The hope. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, what a, I mean, what is hope? <laughs> why, why do anything without it? I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's. There's a lot of quippy lines out there about it. <laughs> hope is an illusion. I don't know. Well, the question is really, for the at least in this article, what does it take to produce consciousness, and what does it take to make a new consciousness? Because hmm. for them, they, they actually go through a summary of modern art. It's. Uh, very interesting to me, perhaps less interesting to other people. But the summary of it is like, art was always classist. It was always about the great military victories. Only the only the aristocrats are allowed into the military for a long ass time. Then you have like portraiture and patrons. So it's always been really classist until the Dutch Renaissance. And if you know anything about the Dutch Renaissance, they start painting you know, random rooms and random crowds of people that are not aristocrats and uh, work boots is something that Heidegger gets all excited about. So you have this like, you have this mediation of not just aristocratic life, but also lower class life or general life. And they say that this movement in art too was nihilistic because you are just, you're preserving it in something that can only still be consumed by aristocrats. You put it in the Louvre. You put it into galleries. Rich people buy it and they store it in in uh, little storage lockers in airports so they don't have to pay taxes on it, which is all art has become these days. But they say, 
Art is on a repetitive loop, and we need to get it out of this repetitive loop. They have a good quotation. It's like, each repetition is feebler and more inane than the last. Only today, with the first signs of a more highly evolved re revolt within a highly developed capitalism, can the radical project of modern art be taken up again and taken up coherently? So they're, yeah, they're about to come. They're about to take art away from the bourgeoisie, and uh, that's the new game for them. Yeah, I mean, I, it's there's a lot of overlap uh, with what I read, too, because I think that's a interesting key claim about how, how can you change consciousness, and I guess they seem to have a belief, which I'm not sure if you totally fleshed out in your summary about like how it is exactly, at least, that art is supposed to do this. Um, I don't know if there's like a, a fully drawn-out theory of how art can change consciousness i mean i kept thinking about phenomenology too because i feel like that's relevant to this question of like how is how is the effect of art able to somehow like disrupt or change subjectivity i mean i think that's i mean it seems like their political project depends on a fairly robust belief in the power that art could potentially have on the masses right yeah. and i don't I, mm. I should say though it's also not just like art as in making paintings because you got to think this is the 60s people don't have television in their homes yet right so when they're talking about advertising they're basically talking about outdoor advertising uh, maybe there's advertisements before you see a film or something like that maybe not i'm not sure but there's not like mass advertising is still in in the public space so if you draw that distinction it makes sense for them to think we just need to take over the public space. We need to replace the ad with for a mixer with something like ironic or revolutionary or or something that challenges creativity and imagination and that will produce it differently. So I mean the fact that we just sit in bed before we go to sleep and consume advertisements uh every hour of the day privately I think that that the puts a nail in this belief, but they thought, you know, we, we could just take over the public space and that's where consciousness is created. That's where public is created. And why not? Why couldn't we do that? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it, it almost, I think I brought this up actually, this guy actually up last week or last episode too. You know, it's not quite the same thing, but it's interesting that in both episodes about situationism, this guy, Dave Meslin, who's this like local kind of activist in Toronto, who just always argues how we should be, how the public space should be also shared with messages that are about some concept of the public good. Like, you know, even, even just like to encourage people to go participate in like their local politics, let's say they should, he's like, we should have a third of all ad space be dedicated to encouraging the public to become better citizens, basically, right? That like for every ad, there should be an ad that says this meeting is happening in your neighborhood about this building, right? Like even something as local as like you should come out, right? And like use admin and use the that psychology to get people. I mean, that's different than what they're saying, but I think there's still an interesting claim there about the use of public space yeah. for a purpose, the power that it could have, right? For both worse and better. And it needs to be stressed, I think, that what they were saying wasn't really impossible. Like if you had enough people, you could quite easily 
sabotage every public advertisement in town because there weren't that many of them. But I guess the issue that I have is today you have, I don't know, a kind of naive online revolutionary, quote unquote, who is saying the same thing as them, but what it would take to take over advertising right now for us, it's it's impossible. It could never happen. You'd have to take over every social media platform. You'd have to be the one serving the ads on the social media platform. Like, do people even look at outdoor advertising anymore or are they kind of like walking with their phone in their hand? So what do you think? I, I want to say, I just yeah. want to say that it's, it, it's really not stupid what they were saying. It was like conceivable in a way that's inconceivable now. Yeah. I mean, do you think though that it's that like, I mean, I don't know. Are you sure that it's re it was realistic even back then? Just to, I mean, because they were saying, I mean, it sounded like they they had a bit of a of a burn it all down attitude, similar to the way that I think some of these online Marxists and anarchists. Yeah, but May, I think May sixty eighth, they took over most of the city center. If you're like failed, if you're though. if you're taking, well, they took it over. They yeah, just right. Gave right. it up. But if you take over the whole city center, you can easily pull down all the advertisements or or sabotage them all. So then what about what's different today? The internet? Yeah. I mean, you, you'd have to, you'd have to take over things that can't be taken over. I mean, you got hackers. Yeah. It's moved you, out you're of gonna, physical you're space. You're going to hack Instagram? I don't know. If, I don't know. Sure. I mean, send anonymous an email or something. See what they're doing. I, they're, they're hacking governments and dumping private information online. It's not, it's not a bad thing, right? Increase transparency. Yep. Use the internet the way it's supposed to be used. Don't use it to sell more bullshit to people and make more money and profit. Fuck that. But that's how it's going to be used under the current system. And they give examples as well um, that are applicable in terms of like, they said uh, the sexual revolution, for example, happened because of film in large part. Like the Catholic Church trying to determine what what who can have sex with who and when and ma marriage and all this stuff. That kind of just, it was eroded and dissolved. And we could say the same thing maybe about uh, views of the gays or things in, in our media space. It's just like you can, you can make, you can change things by say the showing gays? it to people. Yeah, the, yeah. the gays with a Y, not with a Z. The gay, right, oh, okay. gay rights. <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing about this because the gays are trying to make your kids gay. And on the other hand, you have D&D &D and Metallica and Pantera who are trying to make your kids go sacrifice chickens in the forest at night. Yeah, well, we kind of take it for granted, but back then it was a struggle. I don't think and, it's funny. And I don't homosexuality think it's funny. and and. Uh, and other forms of sexuality were were really, really not accepted generally. It was a struggle. The se sexual liberation movement was a huge struggle. And now we are reaping the benefits of it somewhat, somewhat. <laughs> not all there, but it's easy to take the, the progress that's been gained for granted as if it just came out of this benevolent system of neoliberal capitalism. It, it didn't come from them. It did not come from them, but they are happy to sell us anal lube and dildos. Yeah, they're definitely we, happy now that we've now that we got the taste for flesh and blood. But yeah, I remember there's actually, I mean, uh, people, capitalists are so quick to co-opt any new movement that they can. I remember <clears throat> in my in a past life, 
when I was like a terrible student and did community college for a little while and was studying business marketing, I remember this would have been in like the early 2010, like 2008 or 2007, like a long time ago. And I remember, I feel like LGBT ads were kind of a bit of a new thing. And I think one of the cases they talked about was how Subaru was like, they noticed that their demographic was like a lot of lesbian women were buying Subarus. And how they realized it, it was an opportunity and it took a while, but they made like one of the first ads that initially was just kind of covertly advertising to to lesbian women. And like only you would only realize it if you were lesbian and then later became more overtly like the Subaru Forester or I forget whatever the station wagon for whatever reason it became like the lesbian car. Yeah, <laughs> I, I bet that was a spiritual struggle for them. They probably had to spend a few extra minutes in the confession booth for that one. <laughs> Anyway, I think that's it for my article. Um, I guess the points, the, the, the takeaways that I wanted to make were it seemed like a lot less work than now. So it's understandable why they had so much hope, right? They thought that the new art, the new art form is going to be outside of the museums. We're going we're gonna to loot the museums and put all the old art like in the streets, we can sabotage advertisements. We can put up our own advertisements. And uh, this can create a new, they call it urban consciousness, like a city's, a city's consciousness. And creating the city in the form that serves life here is what they say is like the, the revolutionary art project is to create a city. And Yeah, that came up in my article too. Interesting stuff. And it's just so, yeah, I... I don't want to be too, too, uh, I think our revolution will take place on a different scale or at a different level. Cause I can't imagine enough people going out to the streets to, uh, change the city anymore, at least, uh, this kind of cities that we live in, but you know, it's a respect. They saw, they yeah, saw I all mean, the problems they did. Yeah, I mean, like things like like rioting and and revolution and demonstration. Like, I don't. They're not. I don't think they're meant to directly change things. They're meant to awaken a kind of class consciousness and reveal the contradictions. Because when things are going smoothly, those contradictions fade into the background. And when one group or another, it's not like revolution just kind of happens to the the colorless the colorless jobless historical subject it's always kind of specific whatever group rises up it reveals those contradictions and the point of their their totalizing view of things right is to put those contradictions in a global into global perspective rather than looking at them as like isolated and and uh and uh, anomalous they put them into that that sort of lukacian hegelian totality you said the word, and I think I said it too, but this totality, totality almost to us as I guess post-structuralists to some degree, it sounds like something scary or something bad. Totalization. Right. But they're, they want totality as opposed to the absolute fragmentation of social relations. Like you go to work, you're a producer, yeah. you come home, you're a consumer. And this is the, the splits between people and the splits in yourself. Those are the things that they want to totalize in order to uh, reunify. But anyway, I think that's enough mm. for me. Why don't yeah. we turn to you, Eric, and you can present what you read. Yeah, well, the totalizing is relevant for what I'm going to be talking about, too. Um, 
because yeah, it's it's still so much when you when you look at say sort of post Marxists and 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 other Marxist thinkers the the ways that they they engage in polemics with post modernists and post structuralists and sooner or later total totality is probably going to come into it. It still seems to be like a line of separation. It's like no, your theory is is a totalizing theory. We don't want to be to we are committed to local the local the micro. It always seems to be like a point of um, separation on the great on the great plinko board of leftist theories. It's one of the pegs. But anyway, my article is about um, the 1965 Watts riots uh, in Los Angeles. This is Guy Debord's take on the Los Angeles riots that occurred in 1965 in Los Angeles. It's got a complicated history that I don't really think I could possibly do justice to. Was he? Did he go there, or is he just writing about this from Paris? He's. I mean, it says this was translated in, into English and distributed in the USA in 1965 December. The riots started in August, so I imagine it's a kind of pamphlet. And it was quickly written and distributed, but probably from across the pond. I think that's just what they do, right? They're like a modern Marxist movement. Like they see labor strikes, they see revolutions, they see riot. They just they just insert themselves into it and start start saturating it with their their theorizing. Because right, this is from 1965. So remember, this is the post 1962 phase where art was deprioritized and theory was prioritized, saying theory is what's going to help carry us forward. Right. So we're at the DeBoard section. So pamphlet wars. But I mean, there is still the pamphlet wars and the whole manifesto genre. Anyway, let me stop Tristram shandying this narrative and just get right into it. Um, I mean, something like the thesis of this of this pamphlet is like... Here's, here's a line for you. Okay. And all those who went so far as to recognize the, scare quotes, apparent justifications of the rage of the Los Angeles blacks, that's how he's going to refer to them, blacks and whites, <laughs> um, but never their real justifications, never the real justifications, I should say, behind this riot. They pay homage, the spectacle does, to the quote unquote real justifications, all the Ideologists and spokesmen of the vacuous international left deplored the irresponsibility, the disorder, the looting, especially the fact that arms and alcohol were the first targets, and the 2,000 fires with which the blacks lit up their battle and their ball. But who has defended the Los Angeles rioters in the terms they deserve? We will. Nice. <laughs> let the, the French <laughs> let intellectuals. The, yeah. Yeah, yeah, step it up. Like, I like the spirit. And he says next, let the economists fret over their lost $27 million and the city planners sigh over one of their most beautiful supermarkets gone up in smoke and the McIntyre blubber over his slain deputy sheriff. Let the sociologists bemoan the absurdity and the intoxication of this rebellion, the role of a revolutionary publication. 
like ours, is not only to justify the Los Angeles insurgents, but to help elucidate their perspectives, to explain theoretically the truth for which such practical action expresses the search. So you can imagine why this was a pamphlet sent a couple months later. Six days of rioting, over 3,000 arrests, Surprisingly, around 32 deaths, most of them most of them from the black community, many of them cops accidentally shooting each other um, while in the struggles. Um, interesting parts. Yeah, so he writes this pamphlet and it's his take on all of this. And that I, I read that part out because I think that's more or less the thesis. Uh, it started, it, it's, this was like a precursor, if you remember, like the Rodney King riots, LA 1991, I believe it was, um, black man beaten on the highway by a cop, somebody, they pull him over, drag him out, beat him, someone gets it on tape, causes riots. Very similar situation here. A rookie cop pulls over what he thought was an intoxicated man. He was black. Um, he had a person in the car they rent they were near the house so they went and got their mother and dragged their mother back over got into an altercation as this was happening huge crowd f was starting to form to watch and then from there rumors spread especially one rumor that the cops kicked a pregnant lady wasn't there a riot after Rodney King too yeah this one was like uh, 30 30 years before, before that yeah. yeah so this was like the OG LA so riot. Can you correct? Like, were you saying when you were reading this that the international left was like decrying this and being like, oh, they shouldn't riot? Yeah. Yeah. Damn. How, this is yeah, like well, the left is fucking repeating itself. <laughs> yeah. No, it's always the same thing, right? People who call themselves leftists, people who call themselves liberals, but as soon as somebody comes and tries to stand up for what they want, what they need, what they think they deserve, they call them irresponsible. They say, you have no solutions. You have no positive vision of the future, right? You're just rascals and scoundrels burning and destroying and making things worse for everybody. That's always the lines, right? And the, the Christians drop on that. Yeah, we draw the line at burning down a Wendy's. Yeah, exactly. Like we, we, you know, I don't, I don't like, I don't like slavery. I don't like wealth disparities. But we draw the line when you rob a furniture store. Like when, like I don't, I don't know what the logic there I mean, is. I, but that's I mean, that's the logic of the spectacle, is what it is. Really, I mean, to, be, not, to be fair, I think I think most leftist critiques of rioting are are not like oh I draw the line here, but are more coming from a place of is this the strategically prudent way. Do, or is this going to make us look worse? I mean, and I think that's like a reasonable word. Yeah, sure. But I mean, it's it's black people in America in this case. It's their real history and real grievances that have long, long, long and still continue to this day. But that's that's besides the point have gone unaddressed. And as soon as, you know, they try to address them. They try to address them. They do the nonviolent thing. They protest exactly what Martin Luther King likes, right? He says the same thing. He says, you know, I don't <clears throat> like the violence. Nonviolent, right? He wants to lead strikes. He wants to lead marches, but he wants them to be nonviolent. He wants them to stand there, take the beating, and then stand back and take the moral high ground. That's how he wants to approach the situations. So he's not, but he's not like the target. It's the target is the, these, What's the word? Opprobrious leftists, the centrist leftists that say, you know, these people are out of line. The libs. 
Yeah, these lips. people are out <laughs> of line, but he's got that's why he's got apparent justifications in scare quotes because he said, what's the real justification for these riots? Decades and decades and decades of mistreatment. I mean, second class citizen, Jim Crow laws, right? This is 1900 to 1970 was called the Great Migration, which is the largest <clears throat> internal migration in any country in the history of the world, six million black people came up to the northern states from the south. That's part of the background of this. That's why I said I couldn't do it justice. There's so much fucking going on. And plus the World War II, the drafting, there's 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 so many backgrounds to this. You, you just have to read something up on, on if you want to get the background of the Watts riots. But so what he's saying here is he's he's defending the rioters. He's saying it's not a racial conflict. It was not a racial conflict. This is now we're setting it in the totalizing frame. The Watts riot, he says, was not a racial conflict. The rioters left alone the whites that were in their path, attacking only the white policemen, while on the other hand, black solidarity did not extend to black store owners or even black car drivers. Martin Luther King himself had to admit that the revolt went beyond the limits of his specialty, speaking in Paris last October. He said, this was not a race riot, it was a class riot. And he's going to make the point that white working class Americans need to make common cause with, with the black liberation movement in the United States because they are the most advanced I guess in terms of subjectivity, they they are the most advanced in all modern society because they are the ones whose situation best reveals the contradictions of capital, which is way, the way that the commodity form farts out hierarchies wherever it goes, wherever it achieves dominance, it creates hierarchies, the lower class and the upper class. The ones, I don't know, who can direct and bend the spectacle to capture capture it towards their interests and the ones who are just simply subject to this alienation of the commodity world of which the spectacle is a kind of emanation of developed commodity capitalism. So does he get into it all when he's saying like this is not a race conflict, it's a class conflict? Does he at all go into the the spectacleization of the event because presumably he's getting this through news media just the same as everybody else is right he's it's being mediated by images is what i'm saying yeah i mean hmm. yeah i mean he's he, here's what he sort of says about that he he asks a, a rhetorical well maybe not it's a question how do people make history under conditions designed to dissuade them from intervening in it. Los Angeles blacks are better paid than any others in the United States, but they are also the most separated from the California super opulence that is flaunted all around them. Hollywood, the pole of the global spectacle is right next door. They're promised that with patience, they will join in America's prosperity, but they come to see that this prosperity is not a fixed state, but an endless ladder. The higher they climb, the farther they get from the top because they start off disadvantaged because they are less qualified and thus more numerous among the unemployed. And finally, because the hierarchy that crushes them is not based on economic buying power alone, 
they're also treated as inherently inferior. And in a way, what he's saying next too is that the spectacle needs the black communities of the United States in order to, I think, with the one hand, put all the worst qualities onto them and other them. And on the other hand, show how how beneficent capitalism is. Look, we can alleviate poverty. Look how powerful this system is at improving people's lives. It, it also does that white people only suffer under the commodity, but black people negate it with the, in their situation. He says they're negating the commodity. Because of black people, he drops N-bombs in this too. I'm not going to repeat them, but he says, you know, they can only be rich because blacks as a whole must represent poverty in a society of hierarchized wealth. They must represent poverty. Every witness noted the cry proclaiming the global significance of the uprising, quote, within quote, this is a black revolution and we want the world to know it. So it's, you know, this pamphlet has this sort of inflammatory kind of interesting language as I was yelling about earlier when I was yelling out what I thought was basically the thesis of it. But yeah, they're the, they are needed in a certain way by the spectacle in order for it to justify itself, which is a very interesting dialectical way of thinking about these, about riots, which is, which runs against the grain of sort of, yeah, I don't know what you call it, neoliberal thinking. <laughs> Can you explain that one quotation you just gave? What does it mean to say that they negate the con commodity? Is it because they're breaking the commodity during the riots or is it because of something older? Let me see. This explains it a little bit, but not a whole lot. Um, the references to it are a little scattered. In, in taking the capitalist spectacle at its face value... The blacks are already rejecting the spectacle itself. That was a quote. Continues. The spectacle is a drug for slaves. It is designed not to be taken literally, but to be followed from just out of reach. When this separation is eliminated, the hoax is revealed. In the United States today, the whites are enslaved to the commodity. I misquoted that earlier. The whites are enslaved to the commodity while the blacks are negating it. The blacks are asking for more than the whites. Oh, this I is see. the core of, core of a problem that has no solution except the dissolution of the white social system. This is why those whites, this is what I was saying earlier, quote, this is why those whites who want to escape their own slavery must first of all rally to the black revolt, not obviously in racial solidarity, but in a joint global rejection of the commodity and of the state. Man, how, how, the, how fucking history repeats itself. I know it's, a, it's cast in racial terms, but the whites are enslaved to it in the fact that they never give it up, whereas the black community in LA that's revolting, they're negating the form of it. And you see the same thing in the uh, defund the police versus versus uh, thin blue line MAGA heads, is like you're not getting any richer in this system. Your kids are not gonna be any richer, they're gonna be the same as you or worse, but they have no, no vocabulary of resistance. Oh my God. If you want to, yeah, Black Lives Matter and the defund the police movement, listen to this fucking line. What is a policeman? DeBoard asks. <laughs> what is a policeman? Answers his own question. 
He is the active servant of the commodity, the man in complete submission to the commodity whose job it is to ensure that a given product of human labor remains a commodity with the magical property of having to be paid for. Instead of becoming a mere refrigerator or rifle, a passive inanimate object subject to anyone who comes along to make use of it. There's the use value thing. And when he says mere refrigerator or rifle, he means looting. He means when you mm, steal mm, it, when you yeah. don't pay for it. He says, because he says looting is a natural response to the unnatural and inhuman society of commodity abundance. That, that again, that spectacle, right? The spectacle informs the commodity. It presents the commodity world to us, but it stays just out of reach. And we follow it and follow it and follow it. We never reach it. It's inhuman. It's a false promise. The humanism of the spectacle is a, is a salve that keeps us numb and stupid and unwilling to intervene on behalf of other people who are really fighting for the same things that we should be fighting for, unless your last name is Sinclair or Rockefeller or Trump or someone like that. If it is, fuck you. If not, <laughs> then get involved. That's the whole point. And would you say the, the date on this was 1962? 65, yeah. 65? Or 60, 66, it was reprinted and published in, in um, one of those in, in situationist, um, whatever their journal publication, I guess. Mark. But it was originally written, yeah, a couple months after the riots. Riots were in August 13th to 16th, 1965, a few years before Martin Luther King was shot. Well, that is three years before May 1968. That is based. Like what I'm getting out of this is it seems yeah. like we're just reinventing the wheel, having the same debates over and over again. And almost as if like, oh, we're finally figuring it out. When this was written, when like my dad wasn't born yet, pretty much. Yeah. And this is an amazing sort of defense. You know, when when we had that recent sort of outbreak of, of, of violence, sort of, you know, uh, the Watts riots, Rodney King, and then we had our our modern day one that the millennials get to experience. Got to experience. Which one it's is the that? Same, it's the same. It's the same sort of thing, right? Yeah, the Floyd. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And the same sorts of things happened, right? Rioting, and then the same. Then the spectacle deployed its same rhetoric. Look at these irresponsible people. Look how they're stealing from good, hardworking people. Like they deployed the exact same rhetoric that he's debunking here. And he's defending, but he's defending the rioting and the destruction and the looting in in very mid-century Marx terms when he says something like, um, people who destroy commodities show their human superiority over commodities. They stop submitting to the arbitrary forms that distortedly reflect their real needs. The flames of Watts consummated the system of consumption. The theft of refrigerators by people with no electricity or with their electricity cut off is the best image of the lie of affluence transformed into a truth in play. Once it is no longer bought, the commodity lies open to criticism and alteration, whatever particular form it may take. Only when it is paid for. That's what I was saying. The magic of the commodity, right? Must be paid for. Police defend that. Police are the defenders of property. That's what comes up in the defund the police movement, right? That's all they are. They're, they're outgrowth of Pinkertons and various sort of human property protectors. And now they're commodity property protectors. Uh, they... they uh, 
they serve they it's 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 really it's uncanny this these i i love the spirit of this though i'm, very, I'm the all spectacles over it. response is like what about the poor what about the small business owner like no small business owners are very few and far between compared to like a walmart being looted you know if a walmart gets looted well, it's I okay mean, be- it's okay no it's just it's just things I mean, I mean, to be fair, though, like, I mean, I do think that where the Watts riot happened, as well as like the L.A. riots and as well as even some of the neighborhoods where uh, like some of the stuff that happened more recently, like a lot of this stuff happened in in like poor neighborhoods where the people who were running the businesses were more likely to be like a black low income. Listen to the spectacle over here. Uh, That's kind of what he's saying. I'm well, that's what he like said a, here. He said uh, it was a class thing. It wasn't a race thing, right? Right, it okay, yeah. Assuming the race, the, the rioters were racialized and then were so confused when they attack store owners who are also a visible minority because that's not what it's about. It's a class thing. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, totally. That's, it's that's not that's a, a race. That seems, like, that seems like a fair analysis. I'm more just in response to, you know, when I hear some leftists be like you know who cares about like the like they imagine that the people that are being affected by the looting are just like big like white suits and i'm just saying that's not always i'm not saying that that's even my objection my objection is that the only thing nbc will talk about is the poor the poor business owners who's like their windows are getting smashed that's the thing they will focus on they they don't they won't well, bring up like. But here's actually something. Here's kind of actually something kind of interesting that might be different from back then to now. It's like I would say that now the media, like there was a divide in the media. Like the liberal mainstream media was largely defending the riots. Like and and the and the conservative media was the one that was, because I mean there's even that famous clip that conservatives just love to replay where like. It's like some reporter standing in front of like a bunch of flames behind them, and they're like, "It's mostly just peaceful protests here," and it's just like. You know, they show that. <laughs> so I think there was a difference. I think that back then in the 60s, the media probably was much more overwhelmingly just being against the riots. I think today protests, you see, you have a lot more of a mix of views from the from the mainstream media. I don't have any factual yeah. evidence to confirm or deny, know. but I think we should uh, move on so that Victor gets his shot here. Yeah, I mean, I'm not look, I'm not saying that the the mainstream media, I'm not saying it's good because it defends it. I'm just saying like there are competing narratives barely out there. Barely if barely. at all. Not on not on what matters. That's what I'm saying. So like when it comes to material issues, like no, you're right. They it they don't really like disagree that much, but there is a weird like war of of symbols uh where you know the 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 liberal mainstream media is nominally supposed to be pro blm and pro anti antifa and then like the fox news is and the more right wing crazies are going to but still so anyway they're there i'm just saying until there's violence the second that there's violence then even like what i don't know what you call liberal like cnn they're still going to be like can you CNN believe and, and, that and, they yeah. set this wendy's on fire why would they do this do they think this is going to further their goal or make them look bad like look at you're right. You're right. Well, yeah, like it, it's the illusion. It creates it. It's really good at creating the illusion that there's different perspectives on the issue because they obviously the media is corporatized and there's like, what? what is it now? What's the count now? Like four, three, two, one company that owns them all, whatever it is. They obviously they deploy a range of takes on the situation 
and they distribute them through the different media outlets and then they say, look at the variety of opinions you have to choose from when really it's all just like several, you know, whatever, think tanks, whatever, whoever makes these things, just deploying them and giving you the illusion that this is a multi-sided debate with all all these facets, but there's always the most important perspectives that are missing, the really different perspectives. It's just like how neoliberals kind of did it, right? Back in the 70s, they were a bunch of fucking jokes. Nobody listened to them. But then they started assembling into those think tanks and developing reams and reams of different policy options. And then when policymakers came to make their decisions, they said, well, look at all of these. And then there's a couple others from some other people. So then that gave the illusion that these neoliberals, who are just like a few, like Hayek and Friedman and whoever read them, and it gave the illusion that this was like a well-informed and a large, represented a large variety of views. When no, it really didn't. It was just a bunch of different views generated by a few, very few people. I agree with you. I'm just saying that compared to back then, the media narrative, both are are, are um, surface and, and kind of superficial and distorted. But I'm just saying like the media narrative was different back then than it, than it is now. Probably, yeah, more more what we call conservative today. Mm-hmm. Agree. But similarly, like without the, if you want to do uh, the Occupy thing, which didn't have the uh, the race narrative attached to it, it was just a class narrative. Then most of the news then was like, it's right, yes, these people are are poor. The banks got away with it. That's really bad. But what are you? What? Why are you occupying a park? Like, what are you? What are you hoping to accomplish down here? It did, it, it did get to that point. It, it, at the beginning, I remember this, actually. At the beginning, I feel like the media attention was really positive. Mm-hmm. But then as it went on and they kept occupying and they build their little like communes and they, they started like kind of call, the people were like, what are you what are you doing? Like, what do you want? They're snapping their fingers instead of clapping that shit. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so cringe. <laughs> All anyway, right. OK, we I find it extremely cringe. We are not going to end it on a positive note. We are going to end it. No, on a I, note I, okay. of critique, which is encouraged. Yeah, so I read, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that I read is going to overlap with some of the stuff that Pills said. Um, I read this piece called The Legacy of the Situationists International, um, the production of Situations of Creative Resistance by Adam Bernard. And it's like one of those academic articles. I think, where was it published? Something called Capital and Class. I don't know if that's like a well-known journal or not. First, I've heard of it, but... I think the article is actually relatively recent, which is one of the reasons I picked it. I think it might be from, I feel like I want to say like 2008 or 2006, something like that. Like just not that long ago, um, like relatively recent. Um, And really like the reason I picked it was because I was interested in some of the foundational concepts of the situationists as it pertains to politics and revolution and resistance. And it seemed like this article had some of that to offer. And I think it did a pretty good job of defining some terms, you know, like Pills alluded to uh, when he, at the end, he was talking about kind of the building of new cities. This is one of the things that comes up in this article, which is interesting. I think that it's something called new Babylon by um, what's his name? I don't know if I noted the this the person's name, but it was like the city plan basically that was in line with some situationist ideas. Um, but interestingly, I think what the reason why it failed, there was like an internal debate among the situationists, and it's just like to create a new vision of urbanism ends up 
like leading to this situation where you have someone at the top who's controlling the plan and it ends up being kind of unintentionally authoritarian even though the intent of the design is to create situations that will change subjectivity to be towards being more revolutionary but ultimately uh, one of the critiques at the time when there's debates about a new vision is well how are you going to do it and there's a tension I think internally it seemed to me from this article about who's going to decide on the kinds of situations that will lead to the change of subjectivity. How are those decisions going to be made? And is that not going to lead to kind of a vanguardism a little bit, a little bit of like <clears throat> that there's a group of, I guess, elite. This is what I meant when I said that. I think there is maybe if you take the, the, the political action side of actually changing things concretely, some kind of a political project that's unified, there is a bit of a problem where you might have a kind of elitism because you will have a kind of artistic or like a kind of director who will coordinate these kinds of interventions, these kinds of artistic interventions. Um, and then you have like the participants who will, uh, you know, collectively agree to this project, whatever the case may be, whether it's something smaller scale. Um, but then you have the majority, which is the third group, which is going to be passive spectators who are going to be caught up in the construction of a situation. Um, and the whole idea, I guess, behind a lot of these projects, whether it was this new city, is um, to basically energize the passive spectator into action, right? To make the passive spectator to cultivate their consciousness. So so this is like one of the, this is like the age old leftist problem we have all these ideas and theories but we have to we have to be the ones in charge of like awakening the dumb lower class that's what it seems like, like, like to me. That's, that's what seems to emerge if you mm. take seriously like the idea of organizing and doing something concrete it's like you, you're gonna have this hierarchical even though their goal and this is another thing that comes up a lot in the article is, you know, they want to develop egalitarian alternatives that are, you know, cooperatives, community-based activities. You know, they want it to be very democratic in nature. A lot of it reminded me of what you, like you said, Pills, I agree with you. It, it, it reminded me a lot of Twitter anarchists, right? Talking about horizontal power structures, abolishing vertical power structures. Like, that's what they want. But, the, but then when you're talking about actually building a project, how do you actually get that done in a way that is still... And the fact is, you are going to have a passive, like the majority of people are going to be these passive uh, individuals who, and the whole idea of formulating these situations is to somehow awaken subjectivity. I think that in itself is an interesting claim, like how likely is it that these things can actually turn people into active agents? And I think one of the things I wanted to highlight and kind of my main line of critique, I think, has to do with exactly this question of passivity and activity and the idea that it seems like the situationists have a little bit of hope or at least some kind of belief in principle that everybody could be as engaged and interested and want their their uh subjectivity to be disrupted and changed so that they're more active there's like a, seems to be a binary between the passive citizen citizen person who is, you know, enmeshed in the spectacle and is enmeshed in consumer capitalism and all that bad stuff. And then 
there is this, which might relate to that idea we were talking about earlier about living directly, this kind of other person who is engaged and energized in a new, new kinds of experiments, new kinds of social uh, organizations, forms of engagement that actively negate and undermine these structures that repeat uh, the spectacle, right? And I think, yeah, the commodity, right? And I think that the thing that I, I guess, like, I don't know if you want me to stop there and you could comment on what I've said so far if you want. Yeah, I, I really want a point of clarification, just one. Is this, because the article, was it, was it just looking back and you're offering a critique with it or was this the article's critique? No, it was offering a sympathetic kind of overview of it. Uh, and this is kind of my critique, although okay. he does sort of mention in passing a few times that problem that I initially mentioned about who's going to decide that. And, and it's actually I think he's talking about it more in the context of historical background about how I think the guy who wanted to make that new Babylon city and Guy Devore had a disagreement because of how centralized some of these city plans, like the the formulation of the plans were becoming and there was like an internal disagreement about that very process that it would require kind of centralization. Um, so he was mentioning in passing, less as a critique. Sorry, one more question. Do you know any details? Like when they say city planning, do they mean, you know, we have guilds and, and communes and like city centers that are run by groups? Or what do they mean? Like, do they mean tearing down buildings and putting up new ones? What does city mean in this context? So he's talking about someone named Constant. He made this idea of called New Babylon. Um, and so he, when he's talking about, it's like a vision for a large-scale utopian city, basically. Commun like communist? Yeah. Yeah. I th is it their new urbanism? Yeah. Gilles Yvain, Constance, and formulary for a new urbanism. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things that this author brings up is just that the project was kind of flawed because it, uh, what does he say here? You know, Constance mega structures created a totality under one roof, but one that reproduces the same alienating conditions of the given urban landscape. They may have been big and futuristic, but they lacked a critical coherence and were not commensurate with social pract practices. So like it becomes overly rationalistic when you like, I guess, over-determine, over-plan this like grand utopian vision. And then the planners become, in your terms, elitist, but it's like yeah. a technocratic vanguard, even if they're serving the communist utopia. Exactly. And even if they're saying they're trying to change subjectivity, I mean, if you think about that, that's weird that you have people at the top who are like, I'm going to mess with people's subjectivity to make them right. Like, I mean, even if it's for even yeah, if it's a transformation, that's why that's I drew the CIA connection in the beginning is that they're yeah. in, I mean, the opposite side, obviously, well, but. My, but that's fine. Yeah. I mean, we need to do that. Like, like, so I think I'm not someone who I actually am fine with that in a way, because, you know, I, I do think you need like agency is a myth. Like there's going to be influences with everything. So like, I would rather have influences that lead to outcomes that we would all prefer. So I'm not totally against them, but it's just a little bit antithetical to the horizontal, you know, de radically democratic underpinnings is my main thing. It's just inconsistent, which maybe it's a stupid critique. I've heard you in the past be like, who cares if it's inconsistent, but yeah. Anyway. Well, that's, that's what, 
that's what like the the translator and the preface to the society of the spectacle was saying is like many people have tried to sort of work out the contradictions and turn Debord's work into a scientific tract on capitalism and the spectacle and it just doesn't work because it's dialectical it continuously incorporates its own critiques into itself and that, that's what it's a, a critical reason and, and includes its own critique it's, it's you can't really do it and it was interesting in an article i was skimming it was it was actually one by constant and he was he was sort of because these are all like notes from debates and things like that and he was he was accusing asker yorn who we were talking about uh, last week, I just skimmed the beginning of it. He said, Asker Yorn's attitude towards industrial culture is naive. And according to him, imagination is the prerogative of the isolated individual. So clearly he disagrees with that. He, imagination is a collective endeavor, which would seem to contradict the idea of a kind of vanguard. But I, I don't know. I, I don't really know. The, my only connection with it is like like mid to early century Marxist theories of art is Walter Benjamin and and that shock, right? That's the awakening of subjectivity in a certain way is the shock, right? Dadaism perfected this kind of uh, shock treatment of, of art where it, instead of absorbing you in contemplation, which is the mode that we regard the spectacle with, we regard it in a mode of distant contemplation the new art or the the art in the age of technological reproducibility is supposed to become drawn in by the masses the masses wash over it it becomes massified it becomes but we still the problem for him is that we still look at new forms of art with old concepts of art so we look at it with those romantic ideas of originality and individual genius and spontaneity and deep truth, whereas new art demands the liquidation wholesale of all of those concepts, which persisting will lead to fascist deployments of the spectacle, as in the triumph of the will by Riefenstahl and things like that. That's that's a kind of fascist deployment of new technologies with using old aesthetic concepts. And so Dadaism to film is supposed to give us a kind of shock treatment that releases us from that because we have no time to focus. We have no time to contemplate it. The images fire past us like bullets. I don't know. That's my only like. So, if you're talking about like how it's supposed to tweak subjectivity, right? It's not like classical art where it's supposed to represent sensory experience. It's supposed to get to higher order intellectual processes and and tweak those instead. And so, the sort of its own like formulate its own conceptual basis in a certain way in the minds of the masses, who then approach it differently, not from distance and contemplation but by closing in on it and absorbing it and becoming the producers themselves. I don't know. Maybe that was a bad, I don't know. That was a lot of stuff, but that's my only connection yeah, yeah. to it. Victor, can I give you a, a, a picture that I've been working on? It's not in my picture, but it's sure. uh, Baudrillard's response to Marxism, I guess you could call it. So the Marxist picture, and I could say generally, but like not Marx himself, not necessarily Lenin, but you know, in general, the Marxist picture, when they're sitting there and critiquing, they, there's always this like 
the masses are dumb. The proletariat is stupid. If only they knew, if only they just like woke up, if we could wake them up and they could understand what we're saying, then the world would change like overnight. We could have a revolution and things would get better. Mm-hmm. Baudrillard in the 80s makes this picture. He's like, Mark, we've, we've been getting it wrong all along. It's not that the proletariat or the masses are ignorant and oblivious to the fact that they're ignorant. They're, they are ignorant, and at the same time, they're very arrogant about it. They mm. want to sit there and do nothing. They want to be told what to think, but they want you to come to them properly. And if you, if you act like you're better than them, then they're never going to listen to you anyway. So they don't give a fuck about which movie wins the Oscars. They care about the fun movie. They don't care which they don't care about the fucking art gallery and all this hoity toity snooty shit. Yeah, it's this change. (laughs) This changed the world. Oh yes, this opera was the greatest thing ever written by a human. Oh, Beethoven's (laughs) fifth. They don't give a fuck. They're like, you have to come to me. So in this sense, they're actually not stupid. I mean, they are stupid, but by choice. They're stupid and haughty. And if you want to change their mind, you have to like be subservient to them, which is why Marxism never works, because you're always acting like they have to bring themselves up to to your level as opposed to vice versa. No, I couldn't agree with that more, actually. I think that's I mean, uh, yeah, that's I think that's right. I think that's a big problem with uh, not going to the public where it actually is. Uh, That's kind of what. He was saying here, he makes that distinction between surviving and living. It's it's a little bit like bare life and like that, you know, the distinction that Agamben makes. And it's like, you know, the the white lower classes, they, the working class whites can live because they aren't the target of all of this, this repression the black community can barely even live. They can only survive. And so that's why they have to demand more because more is being denied them. <laughs> and so, but I mean, that's, I don't know, maybe that's a critique of Baudrillard's critique. It's like, yeah, the masses know what they want because they can get what they want. But as soon as they're in a situation where they're like very impoverished and almost like the other in their own home, and they can only barely survive and they can't live, which is to, I guess, enjoy yourself and go to the new Avengers movie, mm-hmm. uh, then then you have to demand more if you can't do that. I don't know. I don't know. Saying they know what they want because they can get what they want and they can explore the marketplace and buy what they want. Sure. That's a, almost like a privilege. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> true. But I think then you would at that point be a less than a mass, which is why you would say that's like a minority view whereas the intellectual you know the person who's making ideas youtube videos that person depends on the mass not the other way around but the person who makes the intellectual youtube videos thinks i'm i'm enlightening the masses whereas your the fact that you exist is dependent on the masses so you need to come to that them with hat in hand and offer them something uh interesting enough to to procure their desire. Yeah, I yeah. guess I should I should wonder where my all my electronic equipment came from. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I would say that like so that that kind of leads into like the final point kind of of my like critique, the crux of it I suppose is precisely on this question of activating 
the citizenry, right? Activating subjectivity in the everyday person, right? Not the people who are interested in reading situationism, right? Not the people who are interested in Marxism. Like those people are kind of irrelevant. Like the real question, the real puzzle. That's right, listener. You are irrelevant. If you're listening to this (laughs) podcast. Well, when you're talking about like the possibilities for revolution, you kind of are. Like it's really the people who aren't interested who are the people who are going to make the difference about whether a revolution could happen or not. Um, We're not going to make that difference. So, and I think this goes back to the, the question I had about mediation, living life directly. In this article, at least, this this guy says, you know, the goal is to create, you know, a new form of everyday life, one where creativity and authenticity are under the direction of self-management and not distorted by the alienating system of commodity production. So I think that's an appealing end. But I think, again, going back to where is the regular everyday person who just wants to watch the Avengers and doesn't care, like, where are they at in that? Like, And this goes back to my, the way I'm using phenomenology of habit in my own work. I think that a lot of these views, uh, so this view of situationism, I think it seems to value disruption of structures uh, that institute a kind of passivity. So this means that I think they end up privileging a kind of um, newness and novelty and alternatives and then they end up discounting sameness and repetition or they at least see those things as suspicious because those are the things that are reproducing the same patterns of power or they would have but, to counter that passivity in some way as yeah well, exactly I guess. exactly mm-hmm. but i think i so think you I should think, take the baudrillard okay. point seriously though because he's saying they're not passive they're stupid but on purpose, because they want to be. So it's not ignorantly stupid, like, oh, they're naive. They don't know what's happening. They know what's going on, and they choose to be stupid. Like, do not interrupt my life unless you got something good for me is an assertion of strength or even an assertion of solidarity. Uh, I kind of disagree with that way of framing it okay. because I, okay. I'm, I don't actually think they're stupid or I think they're passive but not stupid. So I think that it's not so much that they're stupid – and not passive, but they're passive but not stupid. If that makes sense. I, so, I want to watch Yellowstone. You can't tell me I can't watch fucking Yellowstone. Fuck you. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. That's an active. Um, I mean, I, mean, that, I know yeah, okay. that feeling though. This this stuff, reading things like this, makes me feel stupid, and I want. I naturally want to avoid things that make me feel stupid. Because so that's I, important. That's important. I so I think it's I, not so I much. I know the feeling. <laughs> so the passivity, the activity, is not in. Oh, I want to actively watch. Yellowstone, but it's more a passivity of I'm not interested in this stuff that's going to make me question everything, right? I'm I don't want that. That's the passivity. The passive the 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 repetition and habit in, is that we are going to veer towards things that confirm our determinacy in our habit bodies in our structures, and so that's I think where we're always going to be living most of the time in our habit body. And I think it seems to me that the situationist hope is for the transformation of subjects, as they say, you know, a new everyday life where creativity and authenticity and self-management are negating these structures of power. That to me is not a realistic thing to build a politics on because the majority of people are not interested in having their habit, their habitus being perpetually questioned and challenged 
by disruptions of avant-garde artist bullshit. They're not interested in that. They don't fucking want that. Dude, I still, I, I really actually want to change my view on this. From any, it's fair. I want to change my view and say that is an active avoidance. They know it's. So you yeah. want to say they, that that's. They know it's active. there. They know it's out there. They're just. I want to have my fucking barbecue, and I don't need any of this shit. Leave me alone. Unless. But I think the reason why they don't want it has to do with these structures of our subjectivity in habit like that that because it, there's friction right like we all know what it feels like to force ourselves to read something that goes against the grain that disrupts the challenges that change like that's work we are maybe weird in that we derive some pleasure from that but most people don't and that's just a fact of the structure of subjectivity in my opinion based on my reading of phenomenology. So any politics that builds is built on perpetually shifting that into some active, negating, questioning, authentic, never going to fucking work. A waste of time. Yeah. But it's, it's like, fun for us. Don't interrupt my complacency, right? Don't like yeah. I, I'm I'm happy in my state of being a passive consumer. Yeah, no, that's speaking give me, jokingly. Give but me yeah, a I know. new structure of passivity that can replace the yeah, last one. Exactly. That is the key to a political project that'll work. I you need come, a new lazy boy chair to, do, to settle You come into. at me with something better, and I'll switch to your thing. That's, but until you come at me it, with something better, leave me the fuck Yeah, make alone. it out of... Yeah, yeah, if you're telling me that out of more bamboo and, and beyond meat burgers, yeah. I don't care. I want to sit in a chair. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. Being we need a, a leftist politics consumer. that is. We need a passive leftist politics. I don't know. It's so like, I mean, it goes back to a point he makes, right? Like in this article, I read the board saying, he says the economic and psychological distance between blacks and whites enables blacks to see white consumers for what they are and their justified contempt for whites develops into a contempt for passive consumers in general. And it's like the the people who don't have that choice to be the passive consumer is and and when we do read these sorts of things and when we try to force our attention onto these unsettling situations it, it naturally kind of disturbs our our happy complacency being passive consumers and yeah. people don't like that. But ultimately, I guess that's a part of the populace that you're going to have to appeal to is exactly. those people who have gently settled into their ways of consumer life. Not even, which is the most Not even people. a part. And, and that I, is I, the populace. The rest of it's exactly. dependent on yeah. that's the core. Exactly. And yeah. I actually wanted to add... I, I meant to say that that that's what I meant in a way that there's an unintentional elitism at the core of this. The elitism is in the truth that most people aren't interested in that. So if your politics is built yeah. on those people, that leads to an elitism. <laughs> yeah, I can see this that. This episode has done what most episodes do not do. And it's, I'm very much, I think I've shifted. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I think I've shifted, but I do, I don't want to call, I still don't want to call them passive. I want to call them actively stupid. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think there's a, certainly an aspect to that. Like there isn't an act, there is an activity to the resistance of people telling you, but I still think ultimately the reason for that is just because of the way our subjectivity veers us towards repetition, passivity, same of what we're used to. But you could even bring it into this like, I mean, I think you're right there, but the pronoun shit, for example, the pronoun shit, like 
99% of people have never actually encountered someone correcting them on their pronouns. That's true. These are these are spaces that I run through and it's happened to me where I like had to be corrected maybe once or twice. Like, no, it's they, not... And that's probably because you were also more likely to be around academics too. Yeah. So like and cut that probability in like a third all, with non-academics. Gender theorists and Foucauldians and yeah. all that. But the amount of active energy that is put into talking about pronouns is immense compared to the actual times that pronouns become a question ah but i know why the reason for that is because of loss aversion which is something that is also built into our habit bodies that like if you can convince and this there might be you might need to bring in psychoanalysis also to like to offer a robust account of this but i think people are motivated when they can they perceive a fear that something is going to be taken away from them so the conservatives who are being fear-mongered to about these pronouns, they are, wow, I'm going to have to live in a world where I'm going to have to be more active and think about the pronoun all the time. Fuck that. Oh, you mean so? It's, so I will actively be against they'll that. They'll put in the energy now to avoid it later. To defend their passivity. To defend their pre-existing passivity, they will defend I got to say, I still think there's. we should keep talking about this uh, at a later time. But the active passivity... Uh, binary that we're drawing, I think it needs to be reframed. Some part of it needs to be reframed. I agree. I, I, I agree. That's something that I'm struggling with in my own work, actually, of how to frame that 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 that, that difference. But I think there is some difference there, but I think that when you talk about it in those terms, something is kind of being lost or distorted or mystified. So You might be able to think I, I of it disagree. in terms of uh, systems theory and like you want to you don't want to change the logic of decision making. You do want to keep making decisions, but you don't want to change the mechanisms or the, the track line. that decisions are made yes. in. Yeah. So you'll fight. You'll expend a hell of a lot of energy to keep the track the same. That's a good way of putting it, actually. Even if it's... I'd like to... I, just before we sign off, too, and I had another thought on an earlier critique that Victor made um about the direct living direct yeah. what was it like real living direct life directly living? authenticity all that stuff kind of and i i i keep thinking the way to frame this is being unalienated because i think and what what i think you know like the althusserian influenced marxists who the new who tend to be mistrustful of young Marx and his ideas about like the Marxist humanist uh, current of Marxist thought, right? Where a lot of them hold out like Lefebvre, right? Lefebvre was an influence on Debord and the Situationists, a big one. They yep. I think he studied with Lefebvre, and yep. Lefebvre's idea, which he says, he says. Um, the transformation of everyday life. The the impetus behind this maximalism came from the idea of the transformation of everyday life, Lefebvre's idea of total man, that is the unalienated man. And I think unalienated would be that direct living. Like that's what it would be. And And I think the structuralist Marxists have the problem with that. And the psychoanalytic... Lacanian inflected Marxists have a problem with that is because we cannot like alienation separation is constitutive of exactly. subjectivity. It's exactly. not a it's not just like you're a total person or you're you're developing 
development towards a total subject is somehow interrupted. No, no, it's uh, it's it's not an option. You got to be alienated. Yeah, so they'd say it's like just how? an unalienated man is, is an impossible thing, and that like whatever you think about the 1844 humanist papers or the whatever Luxembourg or like the the Marxist humanists, yeah, that's I think that would be a major critique as well. Just picking up on what you were saying no, earlier, no, I, I think that's how I, I thought to frame it, maybe. No, I agree with that. I think that's that's well put. I've kind of thought about it in somewhat similar. To, I think also being uh, very sympathetic to Lacan, it's also something I've thought about uh, just in general, like that concept of alienation. And, and even yeah. even, so if you like throw the, out the, the, even if you throw out the concept of alienation from uh, like the capitalist critique of it, then before that you got two thousand years of Christian alienation, where your entire life is spent trying to be unalienated to the community of God and God Himself who you've sinned exactly. against and then you go back before that and go oh yeah the i mean a bunch of people do this as well the greeks they had it right the greeks had <laughs> had their like little segments where each part was ruined or ruled by a character and that was less alienated but you know i mean that's too it's too far from our imagination to imagine whether or not that well fucking wasn't wasn't and wasn't Socrates arguing in in effect about how like the the poets, the gods at the time were? I mean, I don't, he certainly didn't use the language of alienation, but talked about there's a reason why he wanted to get rid of them, to get closer to the truth or something of, of the, closer to the good. Yeah, they were too. They were yeah. bad role models. Yeah. Or even just the legacy of like the utopian thinking, the phalansteries and and utopianism and Charles Fourier and 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 I mean that's a picture of kind of unalienated, harmonious life. Even like the caricatures of just living off the land in some kind of pastoral hippie commune, right? Like you're just like in sync with nature, you're in tune, you're you're taking exactly as much as your needs and like you're in a community and everybody's sort of feeding off of each other. Like those, even those like crazy radical experiments in the sixties, like searching for, and I, I don't know, I think the situationists have a version of that, which is basically to hunt down and eliminate alienation wherever it can be found. And the, the spectacle is the great purveyor of it. I mean, it's yeah. maybe it's, maybe that would be one way to think about they're kind of living directly is gone. Well, it's like, well, it was never there in the first place. That's kind of um, an origin story you've made for yourself that justifies. Yeah, I, I always feel like, uh, I feel like my politics is like, we just need a better alienation and we need better passivity. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, like we, it's not about getting rid of those things. It's just about having better ones. In my opinion. Yeah, something like that. Maybe we can reframe the active passive yeah, stuff for next sure. time and uh yeah. and uh think about that some more. Yeah, that was that was fun though. Yeah, we'll have to workshop it. But for now, we're at an over an hour and a half. So Yeah, exactly. We should wrap up for but sure. But good good thank you guys for uh this is a good format. It's uh we're gonna have to reuse it. Yeah, I was a little nervous about it because I thought it would be disconnected, but I think somehow the it worked out pretty well, it seems, even with articles that were somewhat different, like Eric's was different, but I thought it fit. You know, natural natural sounding segues is very much a skill of, of podcasting that I think we might have gotten good at without even realizing that we did. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, courtesy of this website, too. Who's hosting it? Virginia Tech. Is that who's hosting this um, Situationist Archive? 
Hmm. Yeah, cool. Very helpful. In English, check the check the link below. All right, take care, you guys. We'll see you next week. Our sound yep. here at you next week, whatever it is. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Cheers. Till then, we'll have a situation. Yeah. Construct. All right. 